Hello, my name is Chris Kinane and I'm the Managing Director of Renewable Resource Solutions and we specialise in end-to-end recruitment into offshore wind projects and the wider renewables market. Do you need help finding, assessing, engaging and securing talent? Then please do get in touch. Whether that's an engineer or a tender project manager, we can help. Welcome to Renewable Roadmaps. One spin of a turbine can power a home for two days. That's the name of episode five with Juliet Sanders. I've been really looking forward to sharing this episode as there's lots of great information and lots of great messages too. So Juliet's the Head of Communications for Equinor's New Energy Solutions in the North Sea region. She holds a Master's in Engineering from Cambridge University and has seven years experience in corporate communications, all of which is within low carbon energy. For the last five years, Juliet has focused on offshore wind, previously heading up the UK media relations team at Orsted. Juliet is an honorary lecturer at the University of East Anglia and up until recently sat on the steering committee for the Young Energy Professionals Forum. Juliet has won various awards for her work in communications and she can be found creating music, which we'll come on to in this episode, and tweeting under the pseudonym at KillerJules. I'll put the details in the notes. In the meantime, enjoy. Good afternoon, Juliet. I've, I've just done a, a brief intro on yourself, but please, can you tell us who you are? Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for having me on. Yes, um, my name's Juliet Sanders, uh, and I work as Head of Communications for Equinor's Renewable uh, Energy Business in the UK. Um, but before we get started, I just want to say a real pleasure to be here today because I've heard your other podcast episodes and they're all fantastic. Um, the first one with Celia Anderson giving some um, you know, really practical advice for people looking to get into the industry. And then one with Carlos Martin on floating, which obviously I'm really interested in. Um, and then uh, the one with Willie Dawson uh, on the supply chain as well. So all oh, been really great so far and, and really happy to be here. Brilliant. And, and, and thank you for t- taking the time as well today. Um, so really looking forward to, to getting you on as, as you are very knowledgeable and passionate about the sector. But I think just to um, to kick things off, you'll, you'll be able to provide a number of great insights. Um, but can, can you tell us where this journey started for you? Yeah, so I haven't had probably the most direct route into comms because, um, uh, as you mentioned in your intro, so my background's in engineering. So I was always quite good at math when I was a kid and I was really lucky because I went to a state school um, but had two really good female role models um, in maths and they kind of pushed, pushed me really hard. And one of them, um, when it came to applying to uni and I was, I was going to go apply to do pure maths at university and she sort of suggested that maybe I might find engineering a bit more to my, you know, to my skills and that I might find it a bit more hands-on which would which would be better suited for me and since engineering wasn't taught at school you know I didn't really know anything about it so um so I found a course that was a bit more of a broad engineering course it was general engineering and that was kind of covered everything from aerodynamics to structures to mechanics to electricals to programming you know stuff that I probably couldn't do nowadays but it was um it was mainly maths based and it was a really wide-ranging course which was really good for me because I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do at that stage. And then after two years, we had to specialise uh, in the subject that we wanted to kind of get, you know, continue with in our career, I guess. And uh, and that was the first time really that I chose to do something that I really wanted to do over something which I thought I should do. And I think that's a really important point to raise because um, I think a lot of young people, you know, when they're coming out of college or out of uni and you know you how you don't have any idea what it is you want to do really and um and i think it's you know people people quite often get i guess 
people sometimes kind of fall into just doing something because they're good at it. And I think there's a definite distinction between something that you're good at, which is a skill and something that's a strength, which is something that you're kind of good at and enjoy as well. So um, so I was really happy that actually I took this decision because in hindsight, it was it was definitely the best thing for me to do. So it was a choice between, you know, carrying on and, and sticking with the kind of engineering disciplines such as civil engineering and, and getting chartered or to do this course that I'd never really heard of about manufacturing. And um, and I absolutely loved it. It was so cool. It was, uh, you know, there's a lot of teamwork and it was building on the hardcore engineering skills that we'd learned, but then adding in, you know, extra modules like business development and strategy and things like that. And, and looking back on it now, actually, you know, it was the comms elements that I really enjoyed. You know, I was always thinking, what do we name the product that we're designing or, you know, taking videos of us doing the robot lab and things like that. And there was lots of opportunities for presenting as well. So I think then after that, I, you know, there was a few courses in sustainability as well and climate change. Um, and I was doing a lot of extra reading as well at the time. And, and I knew that I wanted to get into the energy industry. So I joined the EDF grad scheme as an analyst, as an energy analyst. Um, and I think, you know, for people who have been to uni, grad schemes are a really great opportunity to kind of rotate around different areas of, of a business. You know, in my case, it was four placements at six months each. But lots of different grad schemes work differently but they just give you a really good overview again you know how do you know which area of the business that you you might want to work in when you don't know what all those areas are so as i said i was doing the energy analyst scheme but then they let me try six months in the media team and that was again something i never heard of before i didn't even know that companies had media teams but i tried it and i absolutely loved it you know i just i think it really allowed me to kind of combine my creativity but also passion for science and and also kind of thirst for knowledge really because it's so fast-paced you know and you're learning all the time and we can come on a bit later I guess into what the job involves but um so I did the six months with them and then returned back to kind of analytical placements and I just missed the media so much I don't know if it's I'm a gossip but I just you know everything that was coming out of the company wasn't aware of the announcement before I was you know I really missed being in that hustle and bustle of it all so um when the grad scheme finished um I was fortunate enough that there was a job going in the team and they, they took a massive chance on me because I hadn't learned, you know, I didn't have any formal experience in media relations apart from the six months that I'd done with them. But again, you know, the reason that I brought this up is because that, again, was the second time I think that I really, you know, chose to do something that I really thought I'd enjoy over something that I thought could have been a better option for my career. Um, and, and I think that's a really important point throughout your career, you know, that you should always try and look for things you know, that aren't just the things that you think that you should do, but also try and find things that you enjoy as well, because that's, you know, that's how you'll, um, that's, I guess. So I built up a lot of my knowledge there over three years doing media for Dungeon SB nuclear power station. Um, and then I started in renewables in six, in 2016 when I joined Dong, as it was then, um, which of course got lots of giggles every time I mentioned it to my mates. But uh, so Dong stood for Danish oil and natural gas. Um, but it was really in, investing heavily in offshore wind, actually, and was already the global leader in offshore wind. Um, and in the time that I was there, it sold off its oil and gas business, you know, underwent a complete transformation of, you know, to a purely renewable energy company. And it was a really exciting time um, to be working there. Um, and then in April this year, I moved over to Equinor, um, which is a Norwegian uh, international energy company. So headquartered in Norwegian, but again, with its, um, with its roots in oil and gas. Um, but again, you know, really really investing heavily in, in renewables now and we can come on to a bit more about that later but so now I'm head of communications for their renewables business in the UK. No that's brilliant and yeah definitely we'll, we'll get into um get into that in more detail 
um, a little bit later on. But I think really important thing that you've, you've mentioned there is, is about how, you know, you started off on one course, uh, one direction, and, and ultimately it sort of altered slightly, but you're still putting to use, you know, the stuff that you'd studied in the past and you're doing something you're really passionate about. What advice would you give to someone that, that might be thinking the same? Um, you know, they might have started off on one route. They might not be aware of the other opportunities that are out there. Um, yeah, what, what would you advise to someone that might be thinking like that? I think um, based on my experience, I think number one is, you know, do what you enjoy 100% because that's that's the only way that you'll progress and have the passion and the drive to kind of do the best that you can. Um, and I think, you know, as I've done, you know, look, look around for different things, you know, don't be afraid of trying something new, you know, keeping your options open worked well for me. So by doing the general scheme rather than kind of specialising in, in an area of engineering and again with the grad scheme. Um, but, you know, again, if you're if you haven't been to uni, there's loads of other opportunities to get into the industry. You know, apprentice schemes are fantastic. So I think um, I think there's various different routes in. Um, but the other bit of advice that I would give, especially now, you know, when we're in this kind of digital time is, you know, reach out to people and, and take advantage of where we're at now, because, you know, you can reach out to people who you never normally would have expected to give you time for a meeting or anything like that and just reach out to them online through LinkedIn or whatever, you know, people in roles that you think that they might be suited to you and offer them a coffee and you know see if they're up for a chat and a lot of them will be busy and not be able to but you know one in ten might be able to so I think you know reach out and don't be afraid and take the opportunity that we're living in this digital world to um, harass some senior people. <laughs> I think that's brilliant advice and partly the way I got in touch with you to appear on this podcast really so um, yeah it, it does work. Um, <laughs> I think as, as well so alongside your, your full-time job and, and, and up until recently you were on the, the steering committee for the Young Energy Professionals Forum um, and you also are a, a lecturer as well. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about those activities? I think I'm, I've, I'm really passionate about making sure that younger people you know have, have visibility I think of the opportunities that are available to them you know and have visible role models and you know get the support from from more senior people I guess within the industry and you know looking back on the amount of times that I've been offered help by someone you know or, or someone's offered me advice or said reach out if you want this and I, and I didn't take them up on it because I was too scared but then you know now that I'm kind of in a position to do that for other people you know and I mean it when I say it so I think um I think it's really really important to um you know, to try and give back, I guess, a bit when, when you get um, a bit more senior in your career. But the, the Young Energy Professionals is it's really a fantastic forum. So it sits under Energy UK um, and it's it's I've had some amazing opportunities through it. It's really great for networking, you know, for me to see new people, but also for learning about other areas of the industry that you might not know about. Um, so they do kind of panel discussions that you listen into. Uh, we did a quiz every year. You know, that was really fun as well. So they're a fun group. But um, yeah, I think I just think it's really important to kind of spread the message and especially at, at a young age. So I do the lectures at the University of East Anglia um, and that's just once a year. But it's, you know, it's really great because every year you're getting, you know, people that are living in an area where offshore wind is very prominent um, and you're getting the opportunity to speak to them and tell them all about, you know, the great things that are happening in industry. And it's those young people that, you know, they're coming up to the end of their degrees. They'll be the ones, you know, deciding where they want to go next. So it's really great to kind of reach them at this stage. But then, you know, there's a whole nother um, area, which is, you know, in STEM, which is reaching people at, at a younger age than that, you know, because I think it's it's been shown that actually, you know, there's various, as Celia was talking about, there's various um, 
leaks I guess in the pipeline where people can can drop off so it's really important to try and I guess reach people at a younger age in the kind of primary school stages as well to try and engage them with STEM. Obviously as offshore wind grows globally as, as everyone's seeing and the requirement for um, requirements for more people to come and get involved and as you've mentioned and Celia mentioned I think it's important that children of a younger age are probably getting made more aware of, of what's going on in the market is, is there anything any activities like that that are ongoing at the moment that you're aware of or anything on the horizon yes so i mean as a company equinor we we do a lot with them um, with the science museum and we've been doing these kind of virtual things online and you know um with kind of lessons for teachers and stuff during the lockdown so i think you know there's a lot of and i think most developers and most you know most companies are, are looking at the various different stages of, of people learning and, and making sure that we're kind of reaching them as as they as they develop Going more into your sort of day to day then and, and into your role. So when did offshore wind enter your career then in communications? So I first started in offshore wind um, when I left nuclear industry in 2016 and when, when I joined Dong. And if I'm totally honest, I had no idea how big offshore wind was, was going to be at that time. Um, and again, just being totally upfront here, my, my personal view at that time probably was that it was quite a small industry um, that you know wasn't reaching the right scales um, that it needed to make a, a big difference on climate change and also that it was too expensive I think that was the kind of the narrative that I had about offshore wind um, in my head and, and maybe that was you know particularly right I guess at the time but but I think that is part of the comms challenge is, is you know how do you keep people up to date with with an industry that's changing so quickly so if I think back to when I was at uni, you know, we learned about renewables there and there was, um, you know, really brilliant scientist, David Mackay, that wrote this book called Without Hot Air. And in that he analysed, you know, how much renewable electricity, you know, you could actually provide given the current technologies. And he worked out that, you know, if you put a solar panel on every house in the UK and put a turbine everywhere possible on or offshore, that you still wouldn't get to the required level to be able to, to kind of power the UK just with, with renewables, you know, unless you're kind of staying up to date. And that, that does take a lot of effort because it moves quite quickly, then, then your perception can be quite outdated to what it is. So I think that's it's, it's an important um, driver for communications, really, is how can we keep people updated in, in an area where they might not be so interested for themselves and, and keep communicating those um, even with my collegial songs, which I know we'll come on to in a bit, you know, I do one and then it's out of date by the next week already. So, you know, it's a fast paced industry. And, and unless you're, you're actively taking a role to keep up with it, then, then it could be that your perceptions are outdated. And I think that does just go to show, you know, the importance of comms, you know, in reaching people just, you know, via the media and through other means and in, in making sure that people are up to date, you know, with the latest information. Definitely, and, and it does play such a, such an important role within the industry. And going a bit of a deep dive then into your your day to day activities, what does that look like? Uh, well, I love my job because it's every day is totally different. You have no idea what you're going to be. Well, sometimes you you might think that you have an idea, but then it all gets ripped up when when something else happens. So, um, yeah, it could be anything from. I mean, if if I break down external comms, for example, so communications is normally split into internal comms and external communications. Um, and most of my experience is in external and then you know if you dig a bit deeper into that then you've got things that are proactive so that could be you know an announcement that you're doing about you know milestone in a project for example the first turbine going up or something like that or it could be a contract announcement or it could be a new deal and then you've got the reactive side of things so that could be triggered by a question coming in from a journalist it could be 
um, you know, an incident, whether it's, you know, a health and safety incident or, you know, a reputational incident or something like that. So it's, it's really about balancing the two and then, you know, being that conduit between the business and the outside world, but then also vice versa as well, you know, and making sure that people, you know, that work for the business are also informed about what's, what's happening externally. So it's it's a really cool job because it's it's really varied, you know, and it's it suits my personality because it's it's fast paced. It means that I'm learning a lot all of the time, you know, constantly learning new things, speaking to really brilliant people across the industry, um, you know, across the business and across the industry, and and liaising with lots of different stakeholders as well, you know, whether you're speaking with government or uh, communities or journalists or members of the public, and it's about that relationship building as well. So I think there's there is the kind of translation role in terms of you know how do you get the the complex message out to to the public you know that that is a large part of it and and writing skills are obviously needed for that but then you know there's a huge logistical element to the role as well so for example if you're organizing a media trip you know with with a film crew offshore 120 kilometers where you've never been to the site before you know that's more of a logistical challenge I think than than a writing one so it's it's really varied but I love it for that it really really suits me Brilliant. And you've been on TV as well, haven't you, as part of your, your job? <laughs> Only in the background. <laughs> so, uh, so, so my job, you know, my job is to try and raise. So, you know, why, why, would, why would a company have a comms team? I guess, you know, it's, it's partly about, you know, informing, as we were just saying, you know, informing people about what's going on in the company and, and, and protecting the reputation on the, on the reactive side. Um, and it's also for... Um, you know, it's about attracting new talent as well, which I think is a you know a large part of why you'd want to do communications um, and letting people know that the, that the business exists so that they so they want to go work there. Um, but yeah, I was really lucky, and and I was really lucky to have um, some opportunities actually to work with uh, with film crews in in promoting the activities that we were doing when um, in my previous role. So I was yeah, I managed to take a, a film crew out, BBC film crew out to um, to Hornsey One. For the Powering Britain series that was on um, that was on iPlayer, and but I'm my job is to be behind the camera, so you normally shouldn't see me there. Although I think there's a couple of things. There was something from the one show a while back from uh, when we went out to Berber Bank, and it's just this awful like I'm just in the background with my mouth open, staring at a turbine at how big it is, and it's just so bad. I didn't realise I was on the shot, but no, normally I should be behind the scenes on the on the cameras. It seems it seems though then that you, you do have a really unique view on 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 the market and on the industry just because you 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 see all the different moving parts and all tied together, which you know a lot of other people might not necessarily see and. Is, is there any particular projects you're working on at the moment that, well, first of all, you're allowed to talk about and, and yeah, what, what are the key messages you, you're trying to get across with those projects? Uh, you might regret asking me this. <laughs> and there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a really cool project that we're working on at the minute. So I'll just, I mean, I'll give a quick overview of Equinor's um, renewables activities in the UK. So, um, so we actually, we operate two wind farms off the Norfolk coast, uh, Dudgeon and Sheringham Shoal, and, and we've got plans to extend those at the minute. Um, which would double the capacity in Norfolk, so I mean that we can power one and a half million homes from from our operations there. Um, and then in, also in the UK, we've got the world's uh, first floating offshore wind farm, High Wind Scotland. So we operate that, and that's you'd never believe it off the coast of Scotland. And then we're also a partner in Dogger Bank Wind Farm, which is a really groundbreaking project. So when that's complete in 2026, it will not only be the biggest offshore wind farm in the world, but it's um, it's a flagship for kind of digitalization and, and innovation. And it's it's got some really cool bits on it, which I'd love to tell you about if I'm allowed. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, please do.
so one of the reasons that Dogger Bank is so cool is because of the turbine technology that it will be using. So it's using the latest turbines, which is the uh, the G Halliade-X model, the 13 and 14 megawatts. Now, I understand probably that doesn't mean a lot to people, <laughs> but this is why I love the stats so much. One rotation can power a home for over two days, because I just think it puts it all into perspective massively. And when I started actually in offshore wind in 2016, the biggest turbines at the, at the time were the seven megawatts. So in that time, you know, turbines have doubled really in power. Um, and again, you know, one rotation at that time could power a home for one day, and now we're able to say it's two days. So that's that's one element of, um, of innovation with Dogger Bank. And what's happened is that with, with using bigger turbines can really help to bring down the cost of offshore wind. So because the more power that you get per turbine, you don't need as many, so you don't have to maintain as many and you don't need as many foundations and things like that. So it really helps to bring down the cost. And the other element that really helps to bring down the cost is the scale. So Dogger Bank will be the biggest offshore wind farm in the world when it's complete in, in 2026. So it, uh, it will cover an area larger than Greater London. And the reason that that's important is because as you scale up, you benefit from the economies of scale. So thanks to the kind of innovative turbines and, and the size of this massive project, we've really managed to bring down the cost and that enabled us to reach record low CFD prices for the project in, in 2019. Um, but it's also got loads of other innovations. So because of these huge turbines, it means that then, you know, we need to think about the foundations that they're on. So the turbines at Dogger Bank will have a monopile foundation. So that's basically like a steel tube like a fixed bottom foundation but these monopiles are going to have to hold the biggest turbines available so we've got to think about the the weight and the forces so if you think about the forces of air that's going through the turbine so there's about 450 tons of air going through the blades each second now about 40 percent of that is used to create the energy so you've still got about 200 tons of air that the main entire structure kind of needs to take and that's equivalent to about five full-size trucks hitting the turbine every second, right? So imagine that's, that's all happening from the wind. But that isn't even the biggest challenge. So the biggest challenge is from the waves. And the waves act as a continuous force on the monopile. And so if you think about the kind of the weight of the, the blades and the nacelle, which is, I think, about 900 tonnes, and that's on top of the tower. And then you've got this continuous wave force at the minute. So if you can, at the bottom, so if you imagine a kind of orange on a matchstick, and then giving the matchstick a gentle kind of push at the bottom every second, then you can start to kind of think about the forces that these, that these foundations have to take. So that's on the foundation side of things. But then also the big turbines mean that you need the biggest vessels, right, to install them. So the way that turbines are installed is they have what's known as a jacket vessel. So it's a boat that has legs essentially, and it sails out to sea and it puts down its legs and then it, it stands up so that it can be stable as it's installing turbines. But with the world's biggest turbines, then you need the world's largest jacket vessel, you know, and it goes on. So um, yeah, there's loads of innovations on, on that side of thing. And then on the operations side, can I tell you a few innovations there as well? Absolutely, yeah, by the way. <laughs> Good stuff, I told you not to ask me. <laughs> So then on the, the way that the wind farms are operated, um, there's loads of innovation happening there as well. So traditionally, wind farms that were closer to shore, technicians could kind of commute every day out to the wind farm and then back again every day. But as wind farms are built further and further offshore, so Dogger Bank is, is going to be 130, more than 130 kilometres off the coast. Um, and the reason for that is because it's windier and you get more stronger and consistent wind speeds. But as you, as you build your wind farms in these you know, so far from shore, 
um, it doesn't really then become feasible for, for people to commute each day. So they you kind of take the oil and gas method of, of people staying offshore for a couple of weeks at a time and then coming back. So the way that it's worked in the wind industry is that you have these things called service operations vessels. And they're a bit like a floating hotel, if you like. So the techs will go offshore for two weeks at a time, stay on these vessels and they're cool. They're like, you know, they've got a gym often, a cinema room, you know, really nice canteen. You know, it's a nice place to stay, but you're staying on a boat. So I guess you have to have sea legs and um, and you stay there for a couple of weeks at a time. But then, you know, if you look again at the the differences in how, how the techs will get from onto the turbine. So previously they'd have a smaller vessel, which is known as a crew transfer vessel. And the vessel would go up to the, the bottom of a turbine, the big yellow bit, which is known as the transition piece, you know, clip safely on and have to climb up the ladder up to the, the base of the tower of the turbine. But now with these cool vessels, um, they've got this, this walk to work system, which is basically a motion comp compensated gangway um, which means that they can it kind of shoots out from the vessel and connects onto the turbine and it means that technicians can just literally walk straight off the vessel onto the turbine now that might not sound like a big deal but when you think about you know what it was before to what it is now you know having to clip on and climb up a ladder whereas now they can transfer straight onto the turbine which means and they can do it now you know in, in wave heights in much higher wave heights than you could do it when you're transferring onto a boat onto a ladder so you know that's just something as simple as that you know how you, how you get onto the turbine can really make a massive difference so i think uh, i think the operation side of things and, and again on the op side you know then you've really got potential with with digitalization to make a massive difference so there's the kind of sexy stuff like you know the robots and the drones and you know we've, we've had drone blade inspections for some time now and i think they're now looking at you know can we get i think the ore catapult released something the other day about you know a robot that can actually fix you know fix blades and perform, perform maintenance tasks you know the tasks itself not just inspecting on the blades and that's that is all the exciting stuff but then you know on a very basic level you know before wind turbines had any signal at them or any kind of internet you know if you were a tech doing some maintenance work on the turbine you'd have to get onto the turbine with a bit of paper you know work out what it all was and put it onto the paper and then kind of upload all that information when you got back to shore or back to an internet connection but now you know with connected systems what they can do is they can you know see see the particular turbine you know its history have access to you know real-time data upload images and things like that and it just really helps on the maintenance side of things which can have a big impact on on value as well so yeah there's there's loads of really exciting things um happening in industry you know so that's just some of the examples of the innovation that we've got on the on the operation side but it really really is, is an amazing project to be working on because as i said you know not only is it the biggest you know it's using the latest technology you know it's also going to be the first um, ever HVDC connected wind farm in the UK. What does that mean? I'm sure many people are asking. So as it's, um, when, when wind farms were built closer to shore, um, they'd use high voltage alternating current, which is fine for transmitting electricity over those kinds of distances. But as, as you get your wind farms out, you know, further away from shore, then you get losses unless you use a sort of a high voltage, um, a high voltage system to transfer the electricity back. So Doggerbank will actually be the first ever HVDC connected wind farm in the UK. And, and that's really cool. And, and that's just one area where Quinor is being able to use its kind of um, expertise, I guess, from, from offshore oil and gas and really kind of open up new new methods of transmission for, for other UK offshore wind projects. Really interesting stuff, really insightful. And it, it, again, for a lot of people, and, and this is probably where your, your unique perspective on the market uh, comes in, you're going into some really good detail about the, the actual mechanics of, 
of how it works even to the point of you know the innovation with the work walk to work stuff because again that that from my understanding that solved a lot of um, safety issues as well and it's obviously a lot more efficient in terms of time the way the technology is moving forward even even the the infrastructure of you know uh, going from ac to dc it's, it's all changing massively I, I was going to ask you know how have you seen the market move since you started and, and, and where it's up to now but i think you've, you've covered that off really really well and are there any other things that you think maybe the public aren't aware of but, but should be i mean the fact the fact that a turbine one spin can power a house for two two days hence the name of the, the title of this episode and i had no idea about the forces that go on with these turbines and is, is there anything else you feel that you know people don't know that they should know um all of it no i'm joking uh, no i think you know one area i found really fascinating again when i kind of moved over to like, when i was floating offshore wind you know it's, it's an area i didn't really know anything about and you know despite my background in engineering it still boggles my head that these turbines float in the sea I, like i do understand it but you know when you think about this massive structure and it is tied down with them um, with boy ropes but you think about this massive structure floating in the sea um, and that's generating electricity. And that's, that's again, a really kind of exciting technology to watch, I think, because, um, you know, it's at the, I guess it's at the start of its journey. And I mentioned before the um, Highwind Scotland Park, which is the, uh, the first commercial floating offshore wind farm. But what's quite interesting with floating is that, um, well, and, and all new technologies really, I guess, is that as you scale it up, the cost comes down. So we've seen, you know, 70% reduction in between the kind of initial demonstrator, which was one turbine and higher in Scotland, 70% reduction in capex per megawatt. Um, and then when we look forward to our next project, Highwind Tampin, and that one's really cool because that's uh, that's going to be attached to oil and gas platforms. So that's going to be decarbonising oil and gas. But we expect another another 40% drop capex per megawatt there. So it's yeah, it's a really exciting technology to watch. And, it, and in the UK, you know, you'll have seen that we now have a target of one gigawatt by 2030. You know, that's the first one of the first countries to set a formal target for floating offshore wind. And it's got massive potential here, you know, 17,000 jobs and 33.6 billion of GVA. Um, and I think it's yeah, it's, it's definitely one to watch. I think the floating floating element coming coming towards the end of, of this now and um, some really great stuff and, you know, probably have to get you back on at a later date to cover off some other stuff because we've talked for hours about some of this but going into sort of a more personal perspective then and I know you're really passionate about getting these messages out there and you, you do have a pseudonym in, in terms of <laughs> Killer Jewels which you know I don't know which particular song but I will get a sample and, and play as we speak now. all about how UK energy cut emissions down and I'd like to take a minute keep your lips pinned I'll tell you how we came to lead the world in offshore wind Off the coast of Blythe in the year 2K was where offshore wind first hit the UK just two teeny tiny two megawatt machines adapted from onshore to work out at sea but from a couple of megawatts up to 13 so much innovation in these green machines 90 meter towers one to seven meter blades one rotation can power a home for over two days um but yeah can, can you tell us a little bit more more about that 
yeah yeah so this this was a fun project that I did you know in the lockdowns and but it does carry a serious message and it is kind of linked to to the work that I'm doing at the minute and I think it is for me it's about how do we get the message out there to people in a way that they can understand it and in a way that you know that they're going to remember it and in a way that they want to tell it to their friends you know and and this has really come off the back of, you know, I tell everybody that I meet that one rotation can power a home for over two days. And, you know, many people don't know that. And I wrote in all my Christmas cards last year and, um, you know, and I think it's it's such a simple stat to try and get out. And that's why I wanted to, um, <clears throat> sorry, to to call the podcast by it, because I think it's something that you can, that people can really relate to. But the Killerjewel stuff, you know, kind of came off, off the back of that, I guess, in, in just... I'm, I'm quite interested in, in the concept of like guerrilla marketing and, you know, trying to think about what are the creative ways um, that we can really get the messages out to people, um, as I say, in a way that they can they can understand it and that they want to share it. And, you know, another kind of element of that is I've got these wind turbine earrings that, you know, and I've got them custom made by my friend and they move around and they're really cool. But, you know, I'm really hoping that when we can get out and about again, that they become a conversation starter, you know, and then people say, what's that? And then it gives me a chance to kind of talk about the industry. So I think, um, yeah, the Killidale stuff, it's its about kind of creating informed music that can get the message out to, um, to people and try and engage with them um, on these incredible facts of the industry. You know, that has, it's really exciting what's happened in offshore wind and, you know, it really is, I think it's an industry that's providing a lot of, you know, solutions at a time when we need it, you know, in terms of the jobs, in terms of the energy that it will bring and things like that. So, yeah, I think I would love people to be more engaged and I would absolutely love it if everybody that heard this podcast told at least one other person that one spin of an offshore wind turbine can power a UK home. It's important to say UK home, actually, because um, I think uh, homes in other countries might use a bit more power, but can power a UK home for over two days. One final question then, I suppose, is, is where do you see the, the future of the industry going? I think if there's, if there's one thing I've learned about offshore wind, it's never to make predictions because I think the industry just keeps surpassing its, its own expectations, you know, both on cost, um, but also in terms of capacity. You know, in the time since when the sector deal was signed, which was uh, March 2019, that was for 30 gigawatts by 2030. You know, now it's already gone up to 40 gigawatts by 2030. And, you know, same with the CC, the Committee on Climate Change, sorry, and, and what their advice is to UK government. And they initially said 75 gigawatts by 2050, and that's now gone up to 100 gigawatts by, by 2050. So I think, you know, there's no doubt that the industry is growing. It can deliver, you know, we saw on Boxing Day, you know, about 60% of the UK's uh, electricity came from wind. So it is it is going to grow. There's no doubt about that. I think we'll see certainly a rapid growth in floating offshore wind. Um, and I think we'll see new innovations, you know, not just in technology, but in operations as well. You know, new applications for offshore wind as we see it kind of partnered with other technologies such as um, oil and gas and, and hydrogen. Um, but and I think with the work that's happened in the sector deal as well, hopefully we'll see you know, a more diverse workforce, which can only be a good thing, I think, in um, in terms of diversity of thought. So I will not be uh, drawn into any kind of prediction, I'm afraid, but I will just say I am so, so excited to see what happens. I'm really just happy to be part of it. Yeah, we'll definitely have to get you back on uh, for a future episode just to just to maybe benchmark where things are at now and then see what you're talking about in six months time or around then. And yeah, but but for the time being, that's that's been brilliant, Juliet. And thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Chris, for having me on and really look forward to hearing the rest of the series. Brilliant. No worries. Take care.
brilliant conversation with Juliet there and, and some really incredible points to take away from that as well. Firstly, the, the journey in and, and the education route is um, is really insightful. You have to commend Juliet for, for following her passions and doing something which she loves, but also utilising her previous skills in, in education. Some really good points about that that I'd, I'd recommend if you know any students, you, you make sure they listen to this episode. Communications in this industry is absolutely key. Um, it seems like there is a lot of, of information that the general masses need to know, but um, they don't. I learned a lot during that conversation there, and it's people like Juliet doing the work that she does that will make this a reality. And um, I didn't know half of those facts, and I'm asking everyone to tell the next person that they speak to that one spin of a turbine can now power a house for two days. On the note of turbines, and, and GE was mentioned during that conversation, next week we've actually got someone from GE who's going to run through her journey and the new phase of, of turbine technology. So see you then. Take care.